Good morning. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. Remain standing. We are going to continue uh, in our study this morning we're, from where we were a few weeks ago. Um, listen, wasn't last week, for those of you who are here, wasn't that wonderful? Man, I, I don't know. That, that was my, the best Easter I've ever had. I'm telling you, it was honestly, I went home that day and I thought, wow, I have been in glory today. Um, yeah, it was just really sweet. Amen. You can clap. Let's go. I'm, at, but I, you know, I, I just think, you know, this is something we need to trust in is that, you know, God is always there for us. And there's not like you have one day you can go, oh, Lord, this is great. He wants to meet us every day. And that's something that his spirit, we prayed this morning that, again, we are in tune to what he's doing to us. So we're in Luke chapter 17, and we're going to pick up from where we were a few weeks ago. Um, and at verse 20, this is a rather lengthy section, but I really was really, really excited to get into this portion as we were going into it. Verse 20, now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And he said to the disciples, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look, look there, look here, do not go away, and do not run after them. For just like the lightning when it flashes out of the part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will also in the days of the Son of Man, they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same that happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It'll be just the same on that day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down and take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to, whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on the night there will be two in the bed, and one will be taken, the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken, the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, and the other left. And, the answering, and answering, they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. You may be seated. There's this great old saying that I repeat frequently, but if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Really, for the main thing for us as believers is not so much trying to get God to accommodate our plans, but laying hold of his plans and making sure that we understand that he has a plan, he has an ordained plan that he has established for himself, and there's nothing that can thwart the plan of God. Really, and you look at Jesus, you realize how keenly aware he was of the plans of God. 
and what was set before him, and he passes that on to his disciples. Now, at this point in our study, to kind of give you context, Jesus and the disciples are on a course that is set for Jerusalem, nearing the time of the Passover, where Jesus will ultimately lay down his life as an offering, as a sacrificial lamb uh, for the redemption of sinners. They have left the region of Galilee, Jesus and his disciples, some months earlier. During these past months, Jesus has been on the east side of the Jordan River in a region called Perea, where they had gone from village to village and they had been proclaiming the gospel and healing many who had come who were sick. Um, In our last study, we saw that after months that Jesus then leaves the, the east side of Perea and he passes again back over to the west where he finds himself in the region of Samaria where he was met by 10 lepers and Jesus meeting them heals all of them but only one comes to return to give praise and glory to God and thanksgiving for what Jesus had done for him. What was noteworthy about that particular study is that it happened to be a Samaritan who came back and that was a very big deal because Samaritans were despised by Jews. And Jesus sent him away. He said, your faith has made you whole. In other words, you don't have just physical healing. Now God has done something far greater for you. Your faith has made you whole. And that's what I pray for, for all people. We can pray for physical healing, but if that's all you get, what's the point? You know, so there's something greater. But we've also seen in these last chapters, it has come over again and again, the tensions and the rising hostilities between Jesus and the religious leaders. The Pharisees have come to Jesus on occasion looking for anything they can use against him. The resentment toward Jesus at this time is very deep. They have very hostile feelings toward Jesus. They're already plotting his demise. And so this is the tension now that is going on. So here in verse 20, Again, the Pharisees come back on the scene. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. See, not only were there many who followed after Jesus as his disciples and followers, but it seems that the Pharisees also followed after Jesus, that they were always uh, scrutinizing everything he had to say, and they had come to Jesus, and they asked him, well, when is the kingdom of God going to come? Now, that term, kingdom of God, is used some 30 times in Luke's gospel. We learn from Mark chapter 1, verse 14, it says, now after John had been taken into custody, that's John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. But the question of the Pharisees is this, when is the kingdom coming? You see, the Pharisees are keenly aware that a lot of the people have come to believe that Jesus is their promised Messiah. However, for most Orthodox Jews, they believed that when Messiah came, that he would come really in the fashion of King David, that he would come as a military leader, a political leader who would overthrow the yoke of all oppression. In that case, it would be Rome for them. And he would then establish his kingdom on earth in Jerusalem, just as the prophets had prophesied. 
So though Jesus has demonstrated already by his great power, his ability to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, give a voice to the mute and cleanse the lepers and cast out demons and even raise the dead, in their minds, Jesus doesn't fit this picture of what they think of Messiah when he comes. So the question of when the kingdom is coming is really a legitimate question. Again, this is the prophets had prophesied what he would do when he comes. But for the religious leaders, as they look at Jesus, things just don't add up. As they look at Jesus, all they see for him to show for himself is a bunch of loser followers. He sees these disciples who are fishermen and tax collectors, this, this loose conglomeration of just ordinary people. And in their minds, listen, if he was really the Messiah, he would have showed himself up to people like us, <laughs> you know, the, the, the righteous people, the really holy people. He would have come to us and revealed himself to us. But no doubt, even his disciples, when they heard this question about when the kingdom was coming, they too were really curious. You see, they themselves had been waiting for this. If you remember, it wasn't too long earlier, much earlier, that Peter, James, and John were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when they saw his veil of his flesh lowered and they beheld him in all of his glory. And so no doubt at some point, they're thinking to themselves, just any time here, Jesus is gonna take off these humble clothes and he's gonna pick up his sword and he's gonna really start having at it. So everybody wants to know, when is it gonna start? And so Jesus says, well, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. You know, not, not as they say, look, here it is or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Jesus is saying here, the kingdom is not now coming in this outward manifestation as you think or observations of things that you can look for tangibly as to say, well, look, oh, there it is, or over there, oh, there it is, I see it over there. He said, he says, not at least not yet. He's not denying that time will come, but he says, but for behold, the kingdom of God isn't just coming in the future tense, but it is already here right now with you in your midst, right among you. And that really better translated in your midst is among you. Why? Because Jesus himself, the king, is with them. R. Kent Hughes says the fundamental definition of the kingdom of God can be seen as this. It's God's people in God's place under God's rule. You get that? God's people in God's place under God's rule. And wherever you are, and no matter where you are, when the kingdom of God is established, you have people that have established themselves under the rule of God as king of their life. Now, because Jesus is among them and he is present with them, he is saying the kingdom of God is here, it's right now. But not everyone could behold the kingdom. Not everyone could look and say, well, oh gosh, there it is. I, I see it over there. In a very real sense, I say here, that spirit, uh, spiritual sense, wherever Christ is ruling and reigning in the hearts of believers, the kingdom of God is among us. The kingdom of God is among us this morning in the connection of our faith in Christ. You see, true Christianity, kingdom Christianity, is always radically Christ-centered. Jesus said it like this to another Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. He said in John 3, 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We experience the kingdom of God through rebirth. When you're born again, submitted to the lordship of Jesus, we become actually citizens of his kingdom. And that's, I think Ryan uh, taught a message not too long ago about this dual citizenship that we have. 
that we're here on earth, but we're also citizens of a greater kingdom. Paul writes in Philippians 3.20, he says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. And so do these things, then Jesus at this point in verse 22, he turns to his disciples and he says to them, he says, the days will come when you will long to see one of those days of the son of man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, look here, do not go away and do not run after them for just as the lightning when it flashes out of the part of the sky shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Notice here Jesus is now specifically addressing his disciples. He's not really giving answer himself to the Pharisees, but he's talking to them. He says, well, the days are going to come when you're going to long to see the days of the Son of Man, but you're not going to see it anymore. In other words, he's letting them know already as he has before that he's going to be leaving, that he's going to be going away. Notice here, Jesus does not deny that there is a future kingdom, that there will be a future manifestation of his kingdom on earth, but he's emphasizing right now in the spiritual sense, um, he's with them in the new birth. So he's saying in essence this, he's saying the kingdom of God is now in the presence of Jesus in your life and the outward manifestation of kingdom is coming, but it is not yet. So it's now, but it's not yet. He's saying the day is coming when you long to see that one, but until that day comes, he says people are gonna look for it. They're gonna look out there and they're gonna try to find it. And Jesus says, don't run after them. When you hear people say, hey, oh, I see it over there. I, it's, going on, it's going on over here. He says, don't run after them. Don't, don't be suckered into going after this. Now, who is the them that he's talking about here? Well, when you go to Matthew 24, he kind of makes it pretty evident where Jesus in his whole dialogue there, he says, therefore, if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Behold, he is in the inner room, do not believe him. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there will be vultures, will, the vultures will gather. Now, throughout the ages, ever since the beginning, there have been many false Christ who have shown up and presented these false kingdoms and a promise of a kingdom. Dr. Charles Feinberg, who is a, a uh, well-known Jewish uh, Christian scholar, he says in the course of Israel's history, since the time of Jesus, that some 64, talking about those Jewish ones, have risen up and appeared claiming themselves to be Messiah. Now, in our days, in my life, I've seen Sung Young Moon or some Mung Moon or whatever it is of the Unification Church. And of course, we remember Jim Jones of Guyana, who claimed to be uh, the reincarnation of Jesus. There was a guy by the name of Marshall Applewhite. I don't know if you remember him. He says, I am Jesus. He proclaims a certain date. His, his group was called Heaven's Gate and they committed mass suicide. 
And they really believed that when they died, they would rendezvous with the spaceship behind the comet Hale-Bopp. I mean, people are, people are looking for anything, right? And so uh, Charles Manson, of course, made his claim of being a Messiah. David Koresh, we remember him, the Branch Davidians in Waco. And, but ultimately, we know this, that the Antichrist is going to show up. And he's going to appear, and he will deceive the nations. And they'll say, man, this is what we've been looking for. This is the guy who's got all the answers. He's going to bring peace. He's going to bring understanding. And they're going to say, this is it, man. This is what we have been waiting for. They're looking for a person. So Jesus makes sure that you understand there's a significance to when he comes. He says, make no mistake about it. When he comes to rule and reign, he's not going to appear in one place at one time. He's saying his entrance is going to be so grand that it'll be a worldwide event. This is amazing. He says, verse 24, from just like the lightning when it flashes from one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day when he finally does come in his kingdom. Remember after the apostles, they had witnessed the ascension of Jesus in Acts chapter 1, and they're beholding him being taken up in the clouds. Acts 1.10 says that and as they were gazing intently into the sky... While he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way that you have watched him go up into heaven. When he returns, he'll return suddenly as a flash in the sky, descend out of heaven and all will behold him. So here Jesus is kind of given the plans. This is, this, this is God's plans, all right? He's saying presently, he says, yeah, the kingdom is here. It's with you. It's with me. It comes to you in faith. Uh, it's going to be present with them throughout the ages, but he's saying that he's going to be going away. He's letting them know he's not going to be present with them as he hasn't been throughout the ages, but he does promise that one day he will return to the earth in glory to establish his earthly kingdom here on earth in the meantime, he says there are going to be many false Christs who are going to rise, deceive many, promising false kingdoms. He says, but don't be deceived in that, so that when he returns, the whole world is going to witness his appearance as a sudden brilliance coming out of the sky, uh, as revealed when you go to Revelation chapter 19, and you see that beautiful picture of that Jesus just coming out of the clouds there. It's wonderful. But the important point that Jesus makes is this in verse 25. He says, but first, before any of that, any significance of those things, he says, he must first suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Jesus is saying, you want to know the plans? All these things are going to happen, but first things first. And the very first thing that must be accomplished is he must suffer on the cross. He knows his destiny. He knows he has this important appointment that he has to keep where he will suffer at the hands of those who would betray him and the religious leaders. He knows before he can do any of it, he must be rejected by this generation or this people, this genos. Of course, reference to the ultimate rejection that comes his way in his crucifixion. Jesus' fullness of the kingdom cannot come, he's saying, until he first accomplished the finished work on the cross. That is essential for any of these 
other things to take place. He has to first be your savior. He has to first provide a way by which you can be made right with God before any of these other things can happen. I love 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So to this, Jesus adds two historical accounts to explain what it will be like when he returns in glory. Look what he says here. Verse 26, 28, he says, and just as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same that happened in the days of Lot. They were eating and they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building but on the day that Lot went into Sodom, uh, from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Now, Noah, and you go back to Genesis and you read the account, he and his family were spared from a worldwide judgment through waters of the flood. Noah, we are told, and his family were saved out of a local righteous judgment of God in Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, some people have likened the judgment of the flood as kind of a picture of Israel as Noah is carried through the flood uh, to the other side where they established everything brand new again. In the same way that Israel will be carried through this great time of tribulation that's coming upon the earth. It's referred to by, by Jeremiah as a time of Jacob's trouble, a time when they will go through this uh, tremendous sifting, if you will, or this working of God, which is described for us, I think, in the book of Revelation. But they have likened the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah as really the picture of the church. Uh, as Lot was taken out of Sodom, and then judgment came down upon, uh, upon Sodom and Gomorrah before, he's taken out before and out of that trying time. So 1 Thessalonians, we see this picture really, I think, describing the rapture. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and with the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive will remain, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord, therefore comfort one another with these words. So in that particular scene of, of really the rapture, you see that we're caught up. The word is harpazo in the Greek. It's rapturo in uh, the Latin, which we get the word rapture, but we're caught up to be with him. But it is not the same as when Jesus comes down to establish his righteous rule on the earth. One, he takes his people up to him. The other, he comes down and he establishes himself in righteousness right here on earth and sets up his kingdom. Now, both of those stories speak, of course, of the judgment of God and God's deliverance of the righteous. You know, Noah was carried through the flood, the settled in a cleansed world. Lot is taken out of Sodom and Gomorrah, never returns. But they remind us that when God says there's time is enough is enough, he means not enough is enough. And there comes that time when God will say enough is enough. My time for righteousness and judgment has come. He says, as it was in the days of Noah. Now, you go through the account, and I was looking at this in Genesis, you realize there was some kind of genetic inter, 
interbreeding going on during that time between the sons of God and the sons of men. I don't fully understand all that. But it tells us there were some really weird things that they were taking upon themselves. Genesis 6.5 says, And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only on evil continually. What a horrifying picture. You know, in Genesis 6.11, it says, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for the, all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And so God comes and he destroys the world with water, and he cleanses the world with water. It's interesting, you know, Noah, he preaches for 120 years. The whole time he's building his ark. Now, the people hadn't really seen it rain before. He's building this huge ark. And for 120 years, he's preaching the righteousness and he's warning people of judgment to come. But he is the laughing stock of the community. I'm sure the friends said, hey, let's go down and look at crazy Noah today. And look what he's doing. He's out there, he's building this ark and he's telling us all is gonna come to an end and there's gonna be waters and it's gonna, you know, people are gonna drown and all that kind of stuff. And I'm sure he was just the source of a lot of laughter and a lot of, of joking and all that. However, we're told that the day did come. After 120 years, when the waters began to fall out of the heavens, began to rise up from beneath the earth. And at that day, the ark was sealed shut. And Noah and all the animals within were carried up in safety in a time when God would reveal himself in a whole new creation, really a reestablishment of what he was doing. Now that whole time that Noah was preaching and calling sinners to repent, you know what the people were doing? They were completely indifferent. They could care less. They continued to eat, they continued to drink their food, both basic necessities of life. But the idea seems to be that they lived for these things. That they were only doing everything as just for the moment. And they're marrying and they're given in marriage, which is a good thing. I mean, in our day, you know, people who should get married don't and people who shouldn't do. But we, we know that in that sense, listen, life's going to go on for these people. They're going to be oblivious. They're just going to continue on like we have all the time in the world. They're going to party. They're going to carouse. They're going to drink. They're going to marry. They're going to buy, sell, plant. Ignoring the word of God and the warning of Noah. And ultimately, that day does come as Noah warns. And again, the floods came. Eight people were saved. Millions were lost. Millions. In a very true sense, you can look at Jesus today as our ark of safety. When we come into his ark, we are promised, we are spared the judgment of God. And Jesus says, as it was in the days of Lot. You know, in Genesis 18, you have these three angelic beings who appeared to Abraham. One of them is called the angel of the Lord. And when you look at the context, it's obvious he's a picture of the pre-incarnate Christ. He appears to Abraham and they go out and they begin to overlook all of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Lord says, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great. 
and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. But he's saying, listen, God sees what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. He's paying attention to it, and he's saying that righteous judgment is coming that way. Now, of course, Abraham, when he hears this, he's concerned about his nephew Lot and his family. And so he begins to say, well, wait a minute, uh, what about the righteous? I mean, uh, what if there's some righteous people living there? And they kind of go through this interaction. He says, uh, Abraham comes near, he says, will you indeed sweep the righteous with the wicked? And suppose there's 50 righteous within the city, will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? And, and he kind of goes back and forth in this thing, and he says in verse 25, far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. For far be it from you shall not the judge of all the earth judge or deal justly. And then God ultimately says to him, or the angel of the Lord says, I will not destroy it on account of 10. He's saying, listen, he's gonna be righteous in his judgment. He will not allow the righteous to suffer the same judgment as those who are wicked. And this is really the point that Paul makes even in Thessalonians when he speaks of the judgment to come. He says he wants the believers to know as believers, you don't have to worry about suffering the judgment of God. He says for, in 5.2, I mean, 1 Thessalonians 5.2, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. In the days of Lot, throughout the city, they were practicing every form of wickedness, hostility, sexual perversion, and they're completely indifferent to anything of God. They too, they're eating, they're drinking, they're buying, they're selling, they're planting, they're building as if there's no tomorrow as if there is no accountability for anything. Does that ring to you anywhere? Do you not see what's going on in the world around us? The connection there? Until the angels come and take Lot to, and call him to flee with his family to be spared the judgment. He says in Genesis 19:13, for we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Jesus says, but on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. That day comes. The point of Jesus is this. In both the days of Noah, the days of Lot, not only did God execute his judgment against the wicked, but he also spared the righteous. But in the meantime, all those people continued on completely oblivious to God and the things of God and to the warnings of judgment that were coming their way. He says in verse 30, it'll be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down and take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. And then he says, remember Lot's wife. Jesus says it's going to be the same when he reveals himself out of heaven. Really, that word revealed there is the word apocalypsis. Uh, it's where we get the word revelation. We have the, the book of revelation. It's the apocalypsis, the revelation of Jesus. Jesus. 
The day comes when he is coming and he will reveal himself and it will be a day of joy for the righteous. It'll be a terrible day of judgment for the wicked. Revelation 19, here's the picture here. John sees this vision. He says, I saw heaven opened up and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on is called faithful and true and righteousness. He judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the word of God. Now, Jesus says, I want you to remember Lot's wife. What happens to Lot's wife? Remember, Lot is specifically warned, when you flee from Sodom and Gomorrah, don't look back. Don't look back. But we are told in Genesis 19, 26, but his wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. She looks back with a longing for what she had. She looks back with a longing for the things of this world. Not to behold the things which God has for her in the future. And the truth is this, that all who long for this world, if this is what you want, this is all you're ever going to get. And it's coming to judgment. This world. If you want this world, you can have it. If this is what you're looking for, if this is where you find your kingdom, you can have it. But I'm not looking for this one. I'm looking for the one to come. I'm looking for what he has in the future. And Jesus makes sure you understand the point here, verse 33. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. So if you want to keep your life, you're going to have to lose it. And you're going to have to look beyond. I think what he says in Mark 8:35, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Jesus says in verse 20, 34, in telling you the plans of how this is going to unfold, he says, I tell you on that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken, the other will be left. There will be two grinding at the same place. One will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Now, pay attention to what's going on here. He's saying that one moment in time, he says there will be two in one bed. One is taken, the other is left. He's speaking of that which you do at night here. You sleep in bed at night. But then he goes on and says two women will be grinding together. One is taken, the other is left. These are activities that would occur in the morning. Two will be working in the field, one taken, the other left. Activities in the afternoon. In one moment, in one time throughout the whole world, while it is night in one place, at the same time it will be morning and afternoon in another place, Jesus is going to appear and distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. The day of his return will be global. And one of the big debates that you have in this passage is, you know, who's taken and who is left. And there's a lot of argument about that because the language in it, you think, well, is he talking about the rapture or what exactly is he talking about? Because we know that when that time comes too, there will be one taken, one left. We know that. 
But he's talking here in the context of when he comes in judgment. This is you see in, in Revelation 19, you know, that you're going to see one who's going to come and one's left. So the question comes, is it the righteous who are taken away and he judges the world? Is it the wicked who are taken out um, and he judges them? And, you know, people argue and debate. The point is God's judgment is coming and he will spare the righteous. That's the thing you have to hold on to. And they answered and they said to him, well, where, Lord? Where is this going to take place? And he said to them, where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. You see, the disciples say, okay, they're trying to put all this together. So, so where? You know, not, not just who, but we get the righteous and the unrighteous and all. But Jesus responds, where the body is, so the vultures will be gathered. Now, it's interesting because when you go to Revelation 19, which we had just read a few minutes ago, you find that in Revelation 19, it talks about two great feasts. You have one feast that is called the marriage supper of the Lamb, where he gathers the righteous together and they celebrate this wonderful feast, and I'm looking forward to it. I, by the way, I think we eat in heaven. I'm pretty sure about it. Um, he talks a lot about food. He gave us food here. I think we're ready to eat there. Um, we probably won't get fat, which is probably good, but... But, you know, I think we're going to eat. But you have the marriage supper of the Lamb. But then he talks also about another feast. Another feast in that same passage for the birds of carrion who are going to feast off the dead carcasses of the wicked. He says in Revelation 19, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the, the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, both great and small, or small and great. When Jesus comes, it will be a glorious day for the righteous. It will be a terrible day for the wicked. Peter says this in 2 Peter 2. He says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others when he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly and he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by the lawless deeds that he saw around him. Do you guys ever feel that way? You just, you see the wickedness. And he was, he was tormented by that. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. See, here's the great miscalculation that I see in the world. He says, every, everything goes on as normal. Everyone is continuing on. No mind for God. No mind for the things of God. They don't care who warns what, what the Bible says. We don't care. We don't care. We don't care. The miscalculation is this for many. If they would even confess that they believe in God at all, they foolishly assume and they come to this conclusion that because God hasn't judged the world yet for its wickedness, that he's not going to. 
Some actually believe that somehow God tolerating all this wickedness in the world right now, he does so because he's kind of gradually getting cool with it all. You know, he's kind of, he's getting woke. You know, he's kind of coming along. He's getting, he's getting his act right, you know. The thing you have to always keep in mind is God is eternally holy and righteous. He is unchanging. He will never change. He doesn't need to, to, for, to progress himself or adapt himself to any culture or people, no matter what time it is. He is always a righteous and holy God. And to miscalculate and think, well, he seems to be tolerating it all, therefore he must be okay, is you're getting the wrong message. You're really getting the wrong message. God is eternally holy, and his judgment is coming, meaning that just as in the days of Noah, yeah, people are going to continue to go on. They're going to eat and drink and party and do all this stuff and plant, but they'll be indifferent to the word of God. God's only answer, people, to sin in this world is the death and the blood of his son, Jesus, who alone saves us from the judgment that is coming to the earth. The church has always suffered under the persecutions of men. We've always suffered the scrutiny of this world, but it's not the judgment of God. But one day the world will experience the judgment of God. I love what Peter writes in 2 Peter 3.3. 3. He says, know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lust and saying, well, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of the water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to eternal repent or come to repentance. You see, what I see going on in the world today is this. It's another event that happens in the book of Genesis. I see the world building its Tower of Babel. It's like, we're will, we will build it. And with technology, we're going to give God a contest. And we're going to stand up in defiance of who God is. And what you're going to see in the end is another crushing of the tower that this world is building. Now here's the important part for you. Anytime you talk about prophecy, anytime you talk about these things that are coming, it's really easy to get caught up in the sensationalism of the details. But in every account, when you look at prophecy given, especially in the New Testament, it's always with this admonishment to be ready. That is the point. It's not trying to figure out every little thing as it's going to take place. We see the signs everywhere. 
But the whole point is, what good is the seeing the signs if you're not ready when he comes? What good is it knowing all the facts if they don't do anything for you personally and spiritually? You see, we need to live ready. We need to live our lives as if he could come today and or if we go to him, I don't know. This is what I know. I know it's nearer now than it was yesterday. I know that either his coming for me will happen or I'm going to go to him. And that, that's getting closer every single day, every single minute I live. The question you have to ask yourself, am I living in a state of readiness for when that day comes? Am I ready to meet the Lord? You see, Jesus, he's our person. He's our place and he's our rule. He's our king. He's our destiny. He is the one who gives us his kingdom. I love this closing quote by Jim Elliott who says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. As believers, we ought to, even when we hear these disturbing things, number one, it should give you a great burden for the world around you and for the lost. That should provoke you. But it should also say, God, I just want to draw nearer to you. I need you more than ever. And I don't know about you, but it seems as I've gone through, especially this last year, my dependence upon the Lord has become so much stronger. I need the Lord in my life. And I'm not ashamed of it. You say, it's just a crutch. No, 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 no. It's a stretcher, man. I'm, I can't make it. But I'll tell you something. He's good. And in him, there's comfort. And there is peace when he is ruling and reigning in your life. It's a wonderful thing. And this morning, we're going to have communion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Father, just for this time of going through your word. And I do pray, Father, for all of us. Lord, as we see the inevitable day that's coming, we rejoice, Lord, in what you're doing right now in us. But we also know, Lord, there's coming something in this future. It's going to just, everything is going to be altered. I pray, Father, today as believers, Lord, as we come to you and we get ready, Lord, just to eat and drink in remembrance of you, that, Lord, that you would be the focus of our thoughts today. That we remember today, Lord, that you're the one who makes us right with God. That it's your work which you accomplished on the cross. We saw it today, Lord, where you said you must first do this before any of those things can happen. Lord, I pray, Father, even now as we spend time in these moments and our hearts are in tune with you, God, that you would minister to us the security, Father, that is ours in Christ Jesus. As we trust Jesus and not ourselves, as we look to you, Lord, and Father, if there's need in our lives, God, for repentance, I pray, Father, today, Lord, we come, we repent. 
Lord, if today we're just in a place of confusion and hurt, Lord, that our minds would be straightened out, that we would understand, Lord, that the promise is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. So we praise you this morning. We praise you this morning. You all have, were given the emblems when you came in. And again, it's a little bit different, but I want to just, we're going to worship just for a song and then we'll eat and we'll drink together. Just worship. Worship.